0: (laughs) welcome to reputation town okay do you want to start with a little spiel about what this thing is and then that'll like be the beginning and then we can just kind of start riffing Okay, this is that's a great uh, that's a great idea. So, uh, what do we want to, do to see? What, how do we want to position ourselves?
1: Uh, if I was going to do it off the top of my head, I would say, you know,
0: um, I wish I would have thought about this ahead of time. I'd even be more informal. Just like you know, we could start right now. Like, what what is this? What is this? This is uh, two guys who
1: have spent twenty five years plus in the communications business talking about
0: reputations and what uh, you have to do to manage a good reputation and. In this day and age. Very nicely put. Although the twenty five years I think is a little you know sad and concerning at this point. <laughs> like that's a big I, number. I, I,
1: I know when I when I look at my blood pressure, I <laughs> compare that to the <laughs> the age and the time and time and roll. Man. So um, it, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, but you know what? Like the the interesting thing is that you know if you look back over the past 10 years, the last 10 years for sure has been a, a digital era in communications. Like increasingly it's become more and more digital, but it's, well, you know, the digital tools and the digital sphere has been there. Mm-hmm. I think we have the benefit of, of having seen it before that as well. And some of the lessons you had from sort of the, 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 you know, prehistoric age, um, the, the pre-digital age actually are, are quite interesting and not as easily learned in the digital age. So I think, I think that's why we have something special, special to offer.
0: Um, particularly as new people are coming up in the industry are, are developing careers in this space. We shall see, because yeah. I think it's the same set of fundamental lessons. The tools have changed obviously, yeah. and the scope and the scale and the speed and, and all that with social media. But, um, you can look back at you know some of the best handled crises ever were were you know back in the 1980s and in the early 2000s. So um, the fact that you have different tools, you know, I think it puts a bit of a different spin on it. But uh, I'm looking forward to chopping some of these things up and, and uh, putting people through the ringer. Let's do it. Okay, so before we jump into uh, the reputation piece, the I wanted to, to chat quickly about that Beeple, the guy, the artist who sold that 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 digital art for 69 million dollars. And I saw a great headline that says, you know, NFTs are both priceless and worthless at the same time. And you know, you're seeing this creeping out from from a certain kind of niche audience in the Gary Vaynerchuk's and the Darren Ravels and stuff like that. When you when you see that, you know, as as a follower who, you know, you've been in, you know, the business world, the communications world, when you see that sale, what goes through your brain? To be completely honest, it, it seems
1: like this is, this is, you know, a great sign of a bubble because sure there sure there's, you know, an actual cryptocurrency under underlying um, this NFT. Uh, yes, it's art, but it just seems
0: like, you know, this, this isn't tethered to any kind of reality it'll be interesting to (laughs) to listen to this 10 years from now and see if you were like Nostradamus or like, we totally missed the boat. It might probably be the latter. It's probably be (laughs) what an idiot. Man. I just, if I I had so,
1: I am cat NFT that (laughs) was available.
0: (laughs) All right. So uh, we'll, we'll start chopping up a couple of things that have taken place in the media recently. Uh, You get to pick the first one. I'm
1: curious to hear your thought. What what
0: do you think about it? Oh, um, I'm trying to learn more like I've, I've been reading I've been watching videos I'm trying like I was trying to wrap my head around this and the I remember I had the same feeling that I that I thought when I first heard about a lot of things I first heard about Twitter and I checked it out and I'm like this this is ridiculous like you know at someone's name is having coffee and like who gives a shit and so uh, I actually I, I logged on to Twitter in 2006 like I was maybe one of the first group of people on there and I got my my own name and then I tried to use it for a couple of weeks and then I I, I deleted my account I'm like this is ba- bananas this is not going anywhere obviously I was I was wrong and then some guy from the states took my name so now I have my first name with an underscore or last name which is a reminder to me every day that I kind of missed the boat on that and so I have kind of the same feeling when I see this and you know on one hand it seems bananas and the the prices seem astronomical but on the other hand you know I can kind of see where if you try to project 10 20 years down the road that everything is going to end up being like this and so uh, I think one of the like I saw that Jack Dorsey sold his first tweet last week did you see that no I didn't see that so his first tweet which is basically like just setting up my Twitter or whatever and it was didn't even have vowels it was just you know T W T T R. And he sold that tweet. Do you know what he sold it for? No, I didn't see. One, one, do you want to guess? Uh, Five million dollars. Two and a half. So okay. two and a half million bucks to own it. And so basically, the person has. Well, you know how it works. They have like a like an authenticated, basically digitally autographed version of it. So, and he says he's going to give the money to charity, which is great. But that was the first transaction where I thought, okay, I kind of like, I kind of get it. And you'll have digital ownership of all these things that can be shared endlessly, but also you'll have the only version of it and you'll have that ownership. And so, you know, I think a lot of these things are going to end up just being worthless down the road. But, you know, someone said it's, you know, trying to judge the whole macro trend toward NFTs based on the things that we're seeing in the news today and the things that people are buying is kind of like judging the internet based on like Alta Vista and ask Jeeves Mm Mm-hmm. An AOL. So I'm trying to, trying to see the big picture and I kind of can see like, you know, if you're an artist and you, you know, if you're, if you're a musical act and you, you release a song, you can sell that song to anyone on the market and they own it. Now everyone can get it and share it and listen to it on Spotify. And I guess technically the more people do that, the more, the more valuable the, the, the original one becomes. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a world where all the middlemen are, are are gone like all the producers and the agents and all those people in the middle who would be those gatekeepers and take a cut I think that's that's going to be obliterated in the next decade or so but you know the, the, the price to me was astronomical like people are saying well, it's got to be some money laundering person or some you know uh, Bitcoin billionaire like I'm, I'm not sure who bought the thing but 69 million dollars for just a piece of digital art seems crazy well you know what
1: there may be something to it after all, because if you look at the the art market over the past 50 years, it, it is one of the highest returning uh, markets. Obviously you have to invest wisely, but you know, choose it. Perhaps this is the same. Choose, choose the right artist, choose the right piece of art uh, with the right story because art is about emotion and story. And and, you know, maybe you do have something that's got lasting value. Have I you checked out
0: was. any of that guy's stuff? That Beeple guy? Yeah, yeah, no, I have seen it. It's pretty cool. It is interesting. And, and the, he does one a day. The, like, I, you know, I, I have no idea how you would even create those things. They look really realistic and, like, spooky and really... And he seems like such a normal dude. He seems like the guy who would be doing your taxes. And he's got this really kind of <laughs> messed up uh, art. It's really cool. So, for anyone who hasn't seen it, you should check it out. Okay, so... That was our, uh, our off-topic banter. Um, wh- who do you want to start ripping apart first? <laughs> That's not a nice way to put it. Which, which, uh, which recent news item would you like to start, uh, I don't know, doing a post-mortem on? So, well, you know, one of the ones that
1: I, I know you don't like it, but uh, one of the ones I think is interesting, as it is so topical right now, is this whole sort of um, entertainment culture war that's erupted uh, between America and Britain <laughs> over the, over the, the Royal family. And and I find it interesting because, and I, I don't want to necessarily dwell on the Royal family because it is a soap opera, but I find it interesting because when, when you take this, um, when, you, when you take this apart, what you really have is you have one set of influencers who are, Trying to use the media to do two things, I, I think. One is ex- exact some sort of pain uh, over to a group they felt has done them wrong, and I think also set up their future uh, earning potential based mm-hmm. on their their celebrity you know, and there's a, there's a, there is a, big chunk of the celebrity economy that just runs on people being in the news. And if you're in the news, you're bankable. If you're not in the news, you're not. And, 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 and you look at a group, uh, this is a kind of like asymmetrical warfare. You look at a group like that, um, you know, using the media to, to make these points and to set themselves up um, potentially for um, for some earning potential and you look at an as well established um, organization like the Royal family, I almost liken it to, you know, um, um, you know, a, a small stakeholder and a large company, like the, the dynamic is, can be very similar. And if you look at the way that they're reacting, I think there's some lessons to be learned from that. Um, and it, the first and foremost, you know, I think when you saw the Royal family respond, it was, they didn't respond and get into the get into the weeds on this. They mm. kept it at a high level, uh, to kept the high ground. Um, uh, when they responded in written form, but then of course, when you caught the actual people, uh, let's say off guard or in person, you saw them. You saw them go way off message. You know, you and I were I think both commenting on how you know um, when faced with the claim, uh, the, the the claim, are you a racist? Mm. Um, uh, the prince basically repeated back the <laughs> the the this the negative uh, and just said, "No, no, no uh, we're not racist." Mm. There's obviously much better ways to handle it, um, but I think it's interesting. You see, even in a, in an organization like that, which is you got to got to imagine they've got you know PR people crawling all over the place. Um, you have got one on one hand a probably pretty well buttoned down response um, when when it comes to the formal response, but then the individuals are. Are, are, are the weak spot. I'm not sure what you thought of that. Why do you think I don't like it?
0: You don't like the royal family. Because <laughs> <laughs> you told me that you don't like them. <laughs> yes, but you have a good memory. I, I don't know. I just, I don't get the royal family. And, uh, but, you know, it's been interesting to watch this and I feel bad even kind of talking about it and kind of adding to this. But, um, you know, it, it's another one of those things where kind of like the NFT, I'm, I'm figuring out like, was this a selfish, um, immature kind of move or was this like a gangster move you know long term and, mm-hmm. and you know what I don't know is and I don't think what anybody can know is what was the motivation what was the intention what is it that they were trying yeah. to do because you know they said that they weren't paid for the appearance on Oprah although to your point you know if you if you become the top six trending topics on twitter for two days in a row your earning potential is going to go up significantly and my understanding is that they just inked a couple deals one of them was like a hundred million dollar deal with i think netflix or spotify or someone and -hmm. they're they're charging like a million dollars uh per talk or per speech so you know i I think that certainly helped i think like 18 million people watch that thing on with with oprah and um Two hours televised. And, you know, as I am watching it, you know, I'm I'm trying to determine, like, is this is this coming from a, you know, like if if you look at the the place in time we're at with the, you know, the very woke culture and um, especially being in a lockdown, the 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 special everything they said is very tough to attack it's very tough uh-huh. because the, the the issues they brought up are almost um unapproachable these days you know the yeah. men- mental health um threats or the just the, the the whiff of of suicide racism you can't you can't attack those things right without without getting trampled by by the twitter mob and so um you know, I don't know what the real story was. If, you know, if you take it at face value that those things took place, because that was a big bridge for them to burn. Um, going on Oprah, I don't think they're going to be back for Thanksgiving dinner anytime soon. And, you know, th- uh, just knowing everything you know about the, the stereotype of, you know, the stiff upper lip and Britons being, you know, very private, this would be the most horrifying thing for them to see. So, um, you know, got the world's attention, uh, you know, elicited that very short... Um, very carefully worded statement from from um from the queen or or from the royal family i guess I don't, i'm not sure who exactly sent it out but even the wording of that I, I found interesting but you know i find myself debating was this um just a very self-serving kind of money grab or was this was this a brilliant move i, I and I, i'm not sure i can decide at this point i don't know what what, what, what I, I
1: think you i think you know it's it's is both. I think it's, I don't know if it's, I wouldn't say it's self-serving. Obviously there's, there's self-interest in all these things, right? There's the Royal family has a self-interest. The the, the Duke and Duchess have a a self-interest, but I think you're right. Like, we don't know, have no idea the veracity of anything they say. Like I've taken it all at face value. Um, and, um, and, but you know, that's sort of beside the point. Um, it's it's the the mechanism of using something like their celebrity um, uh, to air you know sort of these sorts of grievances or use their celebrity to you know set themselves up otherwise because you could have done that you could have done Oprah um, for ninety minutes and probably not you know you probably could have talked about you know the the growing up uh, in in the in Buckingham Palace and you know the not as salacious details. Like you could have done an interview like that and still probably gotten, um, you know, a good chunk of the the notoriety. So I, I had to think that, you know, the part of this was they they really felt aggrieved and, and so it, that is whatever it is. But, you know, I, I think the lesson back to from a corporate standpoint, you know, cause corporations often have different types of interest groups who feel like they've been, um, injured or, you know, are being disadvantaged, you know, maybe, maybe there's a noisy operation. Maybe there's a plan that the the company has for something that doesn't align with the community. And, and there is that asymmetrical nature of, you know, um, uh, obviously in this case, their celebrity allowed them to get a bigger platform than most people can get. But um, as a, as a company, then you got to think about how do I, how do I, you know, I can't attack, (laughs) <laughs> that the small stakeholder was upset with what I want to do or what I did. So I've got to find ways to, you know, frame my position and myself. Um, and, 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 and you know, this is a discussion for another day, but, you know, with one of the interesting things about it is I can't really rely on the news media to, to do that in the past. That's there that was the really only the platform you had, right. You could, you could, um, sure you could say things yourself. Um, but really you had the news media was the key, key way to get messages out there. Now, of course you have, you know, so many more options to deliver a message directly and bypass the media that, um, uh, that that's what I think we're, we're, we're companies and organizations really have to be thinking as they go forward, if they get into these kinds of situations, but
0: that's probably something we can unpack another day. Mm. So to me, the analogy for a company would be like a whistleblower, right? Like, you know, uh, like, like an Aaron Brockovich kind of thing, Mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, like an Edward Snowden, someone who takes personal risk to, to go out and tell a story. And, and what's interesting today is that, you know, you couldn't, I don't know if you could do this so easily years ago that two people who are basically outside of, you know, the firm or the institution, as they call it, are able to, you know, make a phone call or text Oprah and have this meeting and, and, and tip the the scales just in, in such a tremendous way against this old, slow, you know, just stoic institution. I found that really interesting. And I think that might be one of the things that caught um, Buckingham Palace off guard a little bit. But, like, let's assume that all of everything that, that, that um, Megan and Harry said is true. Let's assume that they went for help. Um, she's having mental health issues and they were, they were basically denied and they were kind of like cast out and that's not taking his calls and he's not talking to his brother. Let's assume all that's true. If that's the case, then you know, the corporate analogy is, you know, doing the right thing is always the right thing from a crisis, not a crisis management, but a crisis prevention standpoint. So if they had actually gone in and done the right thing and gotten the help and, and um, you know, short up the family, in that way I don't think you would have the situation that you have today and so you know it doesn't matter what industry you're in or what you produce or what your goods or services are if you are terrible people or if you're doing bad things eventually one of those people is going to pop up blow that whistle you know put that video you know we see these all the time you see videos from people who work in um, slaughterhouses where animals are being mistreated or you see companies that are putting stuff into their products that they shouldn't be and you have the ability for people to to blow the whistle. Now. So to me, that's the, kind of the corporate analogy. And if you want to prevent that as a leadership team, you have to, I think, a try to decide that part of our company culture is going to be to always do the right thing and treat people properly. And I know wow. that sounds very kind of Mr. Rogers, but like from a business standpoint, it just makes good sense. And then secondly, if someone floats one of these issues up because there are a lot of companies that talk a big game, you know, we're uh, empathetic and we're here for you. And and then when you go to them with a problem, they're like, suck it up or they they fire the person. Yeah. And so, you know, providing people with that support, I think, can be a long term way to prevent any of these things from bubbling up. So I think if they had gotten the help they needed, again, assuming that all these claims are true, I have no reason to believe they're not. If they had stepped in and gotten that help you know, you wouldn't have seen that Oprah special. They'd still be within the family. They'd still have that protection. And um, I don't know, to me, that's, that's kind of, and it and again, it sounds kind of like um, very like unicorns and rainbows, but like doing the right thing to me, reputationally long-term, like thinking in 10 and 20 year chunks is always the right move. Oh, good. Completely. And it, if it's almost like you,
1: well, this is, this is what I always tell people when, you know, they come to, They find themselves in a situation that's a crisis or an issue that's really thorny and they need some communications help. And the first thing I always tell them is that, you know, your way, your path out of this isn't about making up a bunch of words. Your path out is to figuring out what is the thing you're going to do to make it better or change change the way you're approaching the situation or the way you did approach it. And then let's talk about that. Because if you don't
0: have the actual substance, then uh, all the words in the world are not going to matter at the end of the day. For sure. And I want to go back just quickly to the thing you said about um, Prince William. Is that who said the the racist thing yesterday?
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah.
0: I can't keep track of all their names, but I think he's the he's the baldish guy, right? That's right. Okay, so he is asked and they're at a different function. They're doing something completely different. And He's walking across a playground as I, I saw the video for oh, it. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I understand that the journalist asks the question, you know, is your family racist or are you racist? Yeah. And and then he answers, like, no, we're totally, totally not racist, or something <laughs> like we're so not racist. And uh and the problem, and so this, you know, this I've been just you know, both of us have been just beating a dead horse about this for decades. This is the most common mistake that people make in their media interviews and you don't even have to take our word for it, like watch the news and you'll see it every single day. And you know, what's interesting is you don't even have to hear the question to know that that was what the question was because nobody would write that message. And Mm -hmm. you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways to answer it. But um, you know, it, it reminds me there was a, there was an example, you know, the example that I always use in media training sessions is You know, if you're in the middle of a media uh, interview and it's a contentious topic and someone, the reporter asks you, you know, how much of a nightmare has this been for your team? Even if you think that legitimately isn't the case, most people would start by saying, well, I wouldn't call it a nightmare. I would say that it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you go on and tell your story. And. I've been using that as an example for so many years and people kind of like roll their eyes like, yeah, as if as if anybody would do that. And it, you know, Google it. It happens all the time. And so mm-hmm. in July, I see the head of um, Major League Baseball. I don't know if you remember the story, but they had a uh, covid um, positive test on one of the teams and this is, you know, pretty early in the pandemic. Still, it's the summer and the sports are trying to get going, and so they bring the uh, they bring the head of Major League Baseball. I forget the guy's name, but they bring him on to ESPN, and they're doing like a socially distant um, interview. There are two guys sitting on these stools, and the journalist asks him, "You know, it's been said that one positive test is Major League Baseball's worst nightmare. You know, do you agree?" And the guy goes on to repeat. He he basically says it's not, but he he uses the word nightmare twice. And then if you look at what happens, um, you know, once that interview's done, that's the most kind of interesting and salacious quote. So that gets pulled out and it gets put in the headline. And it says, you know, uh, Major League Baseball head says not a nightmare in quotation marks, obviously attributing the words to him. And so what ends up happening is the hundreds and hundreds of versions of that story get get picked up in wire services across the world and it converts into millions and millions of views. And even though he's refuting it, he's saying it's not a nightmare. That word sticks out so, like, your brain can't even process it. But even though he's saying that it's not using the word nightmare, is the worst absolute example of how to message that. And so, I, I tell people that you know, in in a typical interview, doesn't even matter how long you speak to the journalist, you're going to get like two quotes on average in that story. And so, if you repeat the reporter's negative language just once, then half your content is gone. And it's it's such a negative thing and it's so easy to prevent. So, like, if there's one tactic that anybody can take away from this and it it sounds so cliche, but like, you know, we've we've been in sessions together where we would tell people like two and three times like we are going to do this to you. We are going to say these words and you are going to repeat them. And we kind of make a game out of it because we it's just such it's like a reflex it's happens so easily and you don't even realize it's happening. And then your interview is kind of undone. So that to me, if there's one tactic to take away from that, and someone said, <laughs> I think my sister said on Twitter, like, doesn't the Royal family have media training? And I said, yeah, I, like, I don't know what I didn't do it. So it depends on the kind of, you know, are they getting that, that dude that was born in like 1924 with a monocle to do their media training? Maybe, I don't know.
1: <laughs> um, you know,
0: and this, this is
1: one of those things we know earlier you earlier said, it, you, know, you expect they have PR people crawling all around. Sometimes in organizations, and, you know, I, perhaps this is the case with them, you see that, um, the formal part of the organization has, um, you know, strong communications function. And, you know, if you, if you have the time to craft a statement that's written, they're going to, they're going to probably hit the mark, you know, nine times out of 10, but there are, then there are individuals who have great liberty to do whatever they want and for whatever reasons you know power differential or just cultural have a lot of free reign and yeah you know maybe they're gonna maybe the PR team's gonna send them assess something to to review but at the end of the day they're gonna do what they're gonna do and I have a feeling that that's what happens here is that um this, there's probably a, a great distance between the two who knows mm-hmm. but at the end of the day you're right like if this is an easy thing not to do if you just take the time to think about it ahead of time and practice it. And that's why practicing and, and you know, doing media training or, you know, thinking through the tough questions before you put yourself into a situation or, or enter a situation where there's going to
0: be media mm. asking you those, those, those tough questions potentially is so important. I did. Um, I did a uh, another podcast interview recently with a woman. She's the head of a um, lab technologist association. And obviously they've been super busy this past year. Like it's been the busiest year they've ever had. They're doing, you know, tens of thousands of tests a day. And so this woman ended up doing, I think since last March, she's done over a hundred different media interviews all on like, you know, Zoom or Skype or whatever, and all from her house. And I asked her, you know, what, what did you learn? Like how was interview 103 different from interview number one? And, you know, from because, you know, most people will, will do a handful of media interviews over the course of their career. Someone mm. who has done like over a dozen, that's quite a bit. And so for, to, to do over a 100 in a year. And she said that um, and, and I think this is really telling, too. And she said that for every interview that she does, she figures out, obviously, what her messages are going to be and the things she wants to drive home. And she tries to figure out what the focus is. And sometimes they'll send her the questions. But then she will. um Go and turn on her computer and start recording, and she'll record herself reading out her answers and kind of practicing them, and then she'll play it back and sort of edit oh, herself and make and make changes. And um, that also, most if you if you um, if you suggested that to most CEOs, I think they would laugh at you. They say, "What? I'm going to sit in my room like by myself and videotape myself like a kid on TikTok mm-hmm. doing my answers." And the amount, like I always tell people, your first interview is going to be your worst interview. Like why, Mm -hmm. why would it not be? And so why don't you make the first one just for yourself? And then she, she plays it back and looks at it and you have to be, it's kind of tough to watch these things back. No one likes to see themselves or hear their voice, Mm -hmm. but you look at the content and then she would make some changes. Right. And then you go and do the one on TV and it just gets you into that mindset. And, um, the fact that like if there's anybody who could wing a media interview it would be someone who does 100 a year. And the fact that she is building in that time to me, it, it kind of implies that the more you learn about media interviews, the more you realize you don't know what you know. It's kind of one of those things where people who just starting out assume that they can just kind of make it up on the fly. And the people who really go down that rabbit hole understand the value of work. And so I, I just want to share that story because to anyone who does them on a regular basis, that's something pretty easy you can do takes like five minutes you can do it on your phone or on your computer and it makes a big difference to your to your um, to your interview and the quality of it it's great advice oh well, thanks are we done with the royal family now i think so yeah thank We've god spent too much time with them all right so uh what, what's up next on the docket so let's take just two minutes because i think it's interesting um uh
1: you know, this, this, this idea of the alternate channels. And, uh, you know, you raised this uh, recently because you sort of tipped me off to this, um, this uh, new podcast with, uh, it's called All In. It's got a bunch of different sort of business. Bunch of billionaires. Exactly. Bunch of billionaires, bunch of business guys. But it it spoke to the the trend of um, founders, CEOs, other, you know, sort of influencers, um, you know, sort of, creating media platforms of their own not networks, but just platforms through podcasts or, you know, regular clubhouse interactions and um, and using those as, 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 as a, as a conduit to, to have discussions. Like for example, you know, Robin hood in the U S the, they would, they would call it a Democrat, democratized trading platform. You know, there others are more critical of them, you know, you know, alleging that, you know, they're really just putting um, smaller investors at risk by, you know, allowing them to do trades that, that aren't necessarily within their risk profiles. But at any rate, um, you know, they're, they're giving these these kinds of controversial uh, CEOs and other um, individuals a platform for having um, to communicate, to get a message across. Uh, and it's really outside the this, this sort of scrutiny of, um of the regular journalistic uh uh lens that would be put on things if you we were you know if we were just in a in a world where where media um where the media were just were were the ones covering things you know how do you think this is 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 changing the way um companies are going to be um you know managing not only their reputation generally but especially reputations when when it comes to say a crisis or issue
0: I think I don't know. I think this is troubling for the traditional media you you've seen over the last decade, just the dismantling of big parts of the journalism machine. And, you know, here in Canada, you can't go uh, a couple of weeks without a few hundred more journalists being fired from here, laid off from there. You know, Bell fired a bunch of journalists right after Bell Let's Talk Day and. I think Rogers just cut a bunch of people loose, and then the other day, what uh, Huffington Post or HuffPo Canada is now ceasing operations, and a ton yeah. of people have lost their jobs there. Um, and you know, the reason that that you know, I, I had I think I'd messaged you about this, and we were chatting like by text about this, is that the the CEO of Robinhood, Vlad uh, Tenev, I think his last name is he. He was obviously in in the hot seat. They, like that was, you know, they stopped the their um, their members' ability to to buy to buy stocks, and they or to know, sell, like they had people had positions they they couldn't get out. I thought I thought that they were allowing people to sell, but they kind of created uh, a peak, and so because all the hedge funds who had shorted it were were at risk of going out of business, and so they were, I think. Basically, the story was Robin Hood had a huge liquidity crisis and they had to basically, you know, hit the brakes. And then they came out with this kind of like a sort of a BS story explaining what had happened. And it wasn't exactly true. And Vlad went on a bunch of, um, you know, news shows and, uh, you know, to his credit, he went on and, and took some heat. But the messages didn't really they didn't really you know, they didn't pass the smell test. Right. And then a couple days later he came out. And so, you know, to get to the point of the thing we're talking about, I heard that he was being interviewed by Elon Musk on, um, on clubhouse. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, uh, I saw that thing pop up on my phone and I tried to get in and that room is full. Like, I think they only have like 4,000 people in a room. Right. And so I tried, and then what people do is they will broadcast that room and then people in that, in that room will broadcast. And so finally I got into one and I, and I heard a little bit of it. And, um, you know what? What a fascinating thing! You have Elon Musk, like you know, this genius billionaire guy, richest person in the world, interviewing the CEO of this company, like one of the most hated guys in in America that day, and doing an interview and doing a pretty good interview. You know, like it, you know, it wasn't like Mike Wallace, but he was he was asking great questions. But it's outside journalism, right? And so, you know, it, I guess it depends on you know, do does that matter? Journalism is uh, really you know, there's a lot of really strong opinions on it. And especially coming off the whole Donald Trump, you know, fake news and enemy to people and all that BS. But, you know, I, I think that, uh, journalism obviously has a huge and important job in society. And so I think there's a whole bunch of things at play here. And so this to me is the beginning of a trend. So you have a thing like clubhouse, or I'm not sure if you're familiar with Twitter spaces, which is their kind of version of that, that they're rolling out right now, but it's basically these audio chat rooms. And I think Facebook is, is doing a version as well. And, um, So what you're seeing is that traditional media is being sort of pushed outside the circle and you have these these uh, these sort of parallel interview situations where, you know, is, you know, even though it's interesting that Elon Musk is interviewing Vlad in this room, is that the level of scrutiny? Is that as legitimate as a an interview with, I don't know, CNN, Wall Street Journal, New York Times and I think you're going to see a lot more of this, where, you know, does the the person in the public, you know, the person just driving down the highway, listening to the radio, or you know, who uh, you know checks their their news on Twitter or Facebook, do they care that he was interviewed by Elon Musk or by someone from CBS? And I I don't think they do. And so I don't. Know, to me, the problem is the problem with this. I, I, f- I find it fascinating on one hand, and I will be there to kind of listen to this stuff. And to, to watch it. But I think that the bigger concern is there is kind of, you know, people again will roll their eyes, but there's training that goes into being a good journalist and to be the eyes and ears of the public and the three or four levels of questions that you need to ask. And so I think a lot of that is being, um, put on the sidelines and i think this is just the beginning i think it's going to get a lot worse and you're going to see many many more media outlets go out of business not necessarily because of this but i don't think this is going to help so i think on the whole it's a really interesting thing to see but i think it's very net bad for uh for mainstream journalism so you know and this is the thing right it depends on
1: what side of the fence you're on if you're on the side of the fence of an organization that wants to tell a story times have never been better because there is no shortage of platforms. You know, a lot of them are sponsored. So you have to pay for them, right. And, and you see established journalistic outlets, creating sponsored uh, channels just for revenue, frankly. Um, So, you know, they're there, but they're on these other platforms too that are emerging. And, and the reality is, is if you're an organization, trying to get a message across the media is just one small part of what you can do to, Uh, used to do that, you know, uh, you need to be thinking about all those, what what audiences are you trying to reach and then mapping out, you know, okay, so what what are those audiences listening to? What are they seeing or where do they interact? And then you choose your, your conduits uh, accordingly to get your message across to them. So from, from a corporate standpoint, it's never been better because I don't have to depend on the media to get a message across uh and i don't want to you know uh, the idea of a broad based ad is you know, kind of you know it, frankly it doesn't deliver great value these days because i can target things so specifically to to the audiences i'm trying to reach but you you're absolutely right from a journalist standpoint um it, the world continues to to change around them and you know journalism hasn't always been the fastest to uh, adjust and adapt to that changing
0: environment um uh, my God, I remember being, you know, in 1996 and 97, I remember um, I, I think that's around the year where, you know, all these newspapers were putting out online versions of. Mm-hmm. And I remember specifically like the Globe and Mail had their website. And it was awful. You know, if you mm-hmm. I, I like going back to the Wayback Machine and looking up what different websites looked like back in those days. Then mm-hmm. I remember thinking, like, where does this go? Like, you know, this is great that, you know, I think they're trying to augment their their paper you know their hard copy newspaper and they're trying you know obviously everyone's in competition and there's this new thing the internet and but I'm like where does this go 20 years down the road like if you're giving away your intellectual property today what happens and I couldn't really see where it was headed, but I'd like again, it's nowhere good. You can't set up a paywall twenty years from now because you've trained people that this stuff is free and it's worthless. And so, and then you you had places like HuffPo that, frankly, were aggregators of news. They would take news from legitimate news sources and then kind of cut and paste it or tweak it a little bit and, and sell it. So um, I don't know. I, 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 t- there's there's so much wrong with uh, with the media these days, and then you see these these, these journalists getting their noses um, uh, out of joint because they're being shut out of these, of these interview opportunities, or there was one, a a tech reporter, I think from the New York times that they actually tried to block from certain rooms because she's in there recording them and kind of like, you know, that to me is
1: ridiculous, but yeah.
0: So, you know, I, I, I personally think that, you know, again, I'm trying to think, where does this go 10 and 15, 20 years from now? Like, I think you know, and I'm already seeing it. You see this trend where you'll have a journalist who has a pretty good following, and they have they have a voice, and people they've built up trust over the course of a decade or so, and now they may lose their job, or they might be leaving their job, and they are monetizing a newsletter on like Substack or something like that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you had um, you know a thousand people paying you um, ten dollars a month for your, for your weekly newsletter. You've got you know one hundred twenty thousand dollar a year salary, and that is I'm guessing more than ninety um, percent of journalists are making these days. Well, and I think I think I think this is what cha- has changed things, right? You're absolutely right. Back in the '90s, pe- where where
1: people were just exposed to, you know, the internet as a new source and everything was for free, it would it would have been really tough to uh, encourage people to say, oh yeah, it's worth me subscribing to something when I can get it for free everywhere else. But I think what's really changed things is Netflix because Netflix uh, established a pattern of behavior, consumer behavior where where I, I'm going to opt in to subscribing to something I, I feel like I get high value content from. And and of course, that model has been now replicated uh, a number of times over again. And you see it actually been successful with large media outlets. And I think what's probably going to happen is that subscription-based approach is, is, you know, as as old as it is with news uh, it's going to become new again and continue to to, now it's going to mean some consolidation in the industry because I don't think people are going to be paying, you know, for, for 10 subscriptions to things. I think maybe the the only exception to that is local news. I think local news is probably still going to be ad driven, but um, I think we're going to find more, uh, fewer outlets, but, but um, they're going to be supported more on a subscription basis. And um, and that's probably where the future lies. Now, is that great for for the news industry with, you know,
0: more concentration and fewer outlets? Probably not. But I think that's probably where it's headed. Interesting. So maybe, you know, maybe maybe it'll be a hybrid approach where you have a little bit of that. But I also like I can I can imagine uh, a future where I I pay, you know, four or five journalists that I trust and I get that 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 output from them. on a, on a monthly basis, I think that's kind of where we're going. And so, you know, if I'm a journalist today, I'm trying to build my social media following. I'm trying to, and not, you know, with, you know, uh, outrageous stories, I'm trying to do it by again, just building that track record of trust week by week by week. And that's, that's something tough to do. Yeah, exactly. But like, you know, the clubhouse thing, um, to, to just quickly go back to that. Um, I, I think one of the problems here that we're not really we haven't really chatted about yet is the PR people behind the scenes like I think that is going to be a you know because just like any other profession there's good PR people and there's bad PR people when I say PR I'm talking kind of corporate communications media relations all of that kind of um, just swirled up into one but I think that a lot of those individuals who are trying to you know quote-unquote protect the executives they're working for are going to try to pitch this as an avenue of perceived transparency. You know, if we go out and do this interview on, you know, clubhouse or whatever, and who knows what the relationship is between the people behind the scenes, they might be, they might be best buddies. Right. And so they do this kind of interview and then they can kind of chop it up and th- put it through their social channels. And are they getting th- the main question is, are they getting the right kind of scrutiny that they should be getting that the public deserves to, to see. And that is uh, a big question. Um, I, you know, the, the, you know, and I don't know what the answer is. I just find it really interesting. There's so much interesting stuff taking place. And I think the pandemic has accelerated so much of it. But this is a trend that I'm really interested to see over time because um, I I personally and I, you know, I am guessing you're in the same boat. But when I see a CEO who's in the hot seat doing all of their media interviews with um, influencers or their buddies on Clubhouse, to me that indicates that there's maybe something to hide or that they're afraid to speak to a legit journalist. Possibly, you know, again,
1: I, this is, it depends on what, what seat you're coming from. Um, If I'm, if I'm strictly speaking from the, like you said, the corporate communications person who's looking at how do I manage a reputation? Okay. You know, maybe I'll do the odd interview with an actual journalist, but if I can, if I can reach the audiences I'm trying to reach, by using these alternative channels or focusing more on things that I control, more the own media sources I control, or I can, I can, you know, sponsor content through then, you know, that those are the tools that are available to me. And, and those are the ones I'm probably going to use. The, it, where, where it comes down to those, your point about transparency, because if you try and fake transparency, people can catch on pretty quickly. And it, it's almost like even though you can take advantage of all those channels, are you really succeeding in in building that reputation? Because um, uh, you're you're you know evading the scrutiny, and you've got you know probably what you what you have if you're doing just that is a bunch of a bunch of journalists who can't get interviews with you who are writing critical things and that has an impact too. So you can't just like, leave that out there. So I think at the end of the day, it comes down to a mix of making sure that you're exposing yourself to um, you know, genuine journalistic critique and, and obviously you got to prepare yourself and, you know, get media trained and, you know, have the right things to say, right substance that underlies the things you're saying, uh, but at the same time, also take advantage of the things you can do um, outside that. It, 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 it's, it's a healthy mix is probably what what manages reputation best. If you just totally sidestep the media entirely, I don't think that's a long term strategy.
0: Well, you talk about the tools, right? Like I have no issue with uh, a CEO or a chair of the board if they want to turn on their camera and do a video direct to their audience or do a town hall and like, mm-hmm. you know, get rid of the gatekeeper and go straight to the consumer. I have no issue with that. Uh, obviously I have no issue with a traditional media interview where you put yourself up for that scrutiny and you can get any kind of question and hopefully they're, you know, fair and, and they give you fair treatment. The thing that I have the issue with is the pretend interview, which is kind of what this is like. Um, Elon Musk really smart guy but is he the guy who should be asking and not to pick on him right because this is happening you're going to see a a lot more of this stuff happening to me Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a pretend interview it's kind of like you know in Ontario here um, you know Robin Doug Ford created was that channel that they had they had their own kind of like fake news it was like a pretend news channel and it looked just like a news channel and they had the superimposed graphics on the screen, but nothing about it is news. This is all just stuff from their party that they wanted to shove out into their base who gladly kind of gobbled it up. And the problem is to to the unsophisticated viewer, that looks just like the, the news that they're seeing on Channel 9 or Channel 12 or Channel 3. And so that that to me is kind of thing that rubs me the wrong way it's just it's like a pretend version of it and you know the tools make that possible to happen and you know i i think that uh, that is adding to the erosion of journalism and the other thing is i think journalists need to maybe some of them need to do a better job like if 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 so many executives feel like they're going to be in a gotcha interview situation which is not the you should feel like this is you know, they might be a tough journalist, but I'm going to get a fair shake. Like it mm-hmm. might be, they might ask difficult questions, but I know ultimately I'm going to be treated fairly. And I think that, and I think what happens is the the reporter who's looking to get the interview loses it because the person goes on clubhouse to do mm-hmm. their interview. And then the reporter gets angry and then the reporter is trying harder. And then, so the reporter is staking them out outside their house or trying to chase them down at the gym. And so that the antagonism builds in the relationship. And I think it just, it's this vicious feedback loop that keeps getting worse. And so, you know, I just, I don't know, I don't know who, who the winners and losers are, but it's interesting to watch. Yeah. No, 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 no doubt. Have we exhausted that one now? I
1: think so. All right. You know, there's more. I think there's more to say about it, but I think in the context of this, it's. I think we we hit all the right bases. It's going to continue to be something that we that's going to evolve, and um, I'm fascinated to see as as you point out. You know, as these uh, other social platforms start just cloning Clubhouse and um, and providing these alternate channels for having
0: these discussions, uh, it'd be be interesting to see how this uh, where, where this takes us. And we haven't even talked about the whole. You know, people are recording these things and putting them out there. What does uh-huh. that do? If you're a publicly traded company and you have your CEO going on there and, and talking willy nilly, does that impact, um, real uh, regulatory issues, stock price, quiet periods? Like, there's a whole issue in there as well. Like the the genie is totally out of the bottle on this, so it's going to be interesting to watch. Absolutely. Um, anything else you wanted to, to hit up today, or is, have we exhausted uh, episode one? I think let's. I think we should uh, we should put episode one in the. Uh in the memory bank and look forward to doing this again. Cool. And if anyone has any, anyone like as if anyone's listening, if anyone has any uh, guests or topics, people they want to hear us uh, bring on here and uh, chat PR with, or if you are in that business and want to come on and, uh, and chat about some stuff, give us a shout. Thanks, Warren. Thanks, John. See you next time. Take care. Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please
1: rate, review or recommend the show. See you next time.